Welcome to Piecing It All Together. My name is Bo Sanders, and I'm flying solo today. For those of you who listened to our most recent episode, the live chat, you know that it ended on a bad note. I was lifting up a prayer for my friend Rachel Held Evans, and we found out that she had passed that morning. So... This week, I was going to share a 2011 interview that I did with her when I was part of a different podcast back then, Homebrewed. But Homebrewed has migrated since then, and um, I guess the audio didn't come migrate over to the new server. I'm in the midst of a move to a new house, and so I had to rummage through my boxes, my unopened boxes, And I was able to locate my box that had my external hard drive in it. And I frantically looked through that until I found my audio of the 2011 interview. So I want to share it with you. I want you to hear Rachel's voice. You're going to hear that she is generous, she is kind, she's humble, and she is insightful. And it's a real loss to my community Uh, She was a very popular author and blogger extraordinaire. For those of you who are not familiar with Rachel, I hope that you will enjoy this interview. I think you will. And for those of you who are here to listen to this uh, interview, but you're not familiar with the piecing it all together yet, I hope that you will subscribe and tune in as uh, Randy and I continue the conversation. In this interview, we talk about the research she's doing for her upcoming book, which turned into a year of biblical womanhood, and her first book about growing up in monkey town. I hope that you will enjoy this interview. I'd love to get your feedback. Please share this widely with anyone you know who would enjoy it. You have certainly experienced... uh a bit of a surge in popularity in the last couple of years. How's that going? Oh, it's, it's good. I mean, I don't know that it's um, a surge in popularity about me as much as I think I've been uh, sort of figuring out my audience on the blog, and so I kind of know what they like now, and they tend to share stuff more than they used to. I don't know how to answer that question without going I'm bragging. Yes, I'm wildly well, popular these days. Well, let me brag for you. So your blog has become a kind of a home base for a lot of people who don't feel that they have a voice otherwise to say, um, you know, I've I've changed from uh, the faith that I inherited from my parents or that I've learned to question what I learned at Bible college or that I'm just uh, going through this life situation or I'm wrestling with uh, whether it's uh, roles of women or um, blog has become kind of a hub for people to be really honest and vulnerable in a way that, honestly, you can't be in a lot of other forums. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And I, I, For some reason, uh, the blog really seems to attract people who are in a transition, which mm-hmm. means we get actually a pretty good diversity of folks. You know, you'll have people going from, you know, Catholicism to evangelicalism, evangelicalism to, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church, Methodists going to Pentecostals, you know, like, it's a a strange sort of 
mix of people, but they all seem to be in transition, going from one place mm-hmm. to another, and we're all sort of crossing paths on the blog, which is cool. Uh, I like that it's diverse, but I like that we sort of seem to have that commonality. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, the, I, I love the fact that on the blog the people who seem to be attracted to it are general, generally very civil and funny mm. and honest and thoughtful. And, I mean, I delete the, you know, really mean yeah. troll type things. That helps, too. Oh, but you? I really pride, you know, I feel very proud that we have such a warm environment, you know, in which people can share their thoughts and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's a, kind of a group effort, really. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. For people who uh, this is their introduction to you and uh, – Let's talk about uh, evolving in Monkey Town. That's really what brought you into the spotlight. That was a huge kind of a coming out party. Why don't you tell people a little bit about that and and all the background of that, just as an introduction? Sure. Well, uh, Evolving in Monkey Town is the title of my first book, and it's uh, a spiritual memoir sort of that I probably had no business writing when I was only 25, but uh, it (laughs) I, I live in Dayton, Tennessee, which is the home of the famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. History buffs are very familiar with Dayton, Tennessee, because it really was, like, the biggest trial. They called it the trial of the century back before sure. O.J. took the spotlight yeah. on that one. So, uh, And so this is a very – that trial was um, sort of testing the, the anti-evolution laws in Tennessee where you could actually be – prosecuted for teaching evolution in public schools, and one of our local school teachers was, and so it sort of became like a test trial. Uh, So anyway, so Dayton has sort of kept that very conservative, fundamentalist culture here in town. There's, you know, a church on every corner. The only statue in the lawn of the courthouse is of William Jennings Bryan, who was on the prosecuting side of the scope <laughs> trial. There's no statue of Darrow or scopes or anything like that. So it, 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 is, it really is the essence of Bible Belt culture. In fact, little known fact, um, the phrase Bible Belt was actually coined by a reporter who was working on the scopes trial when he came up wow. with that. So we, we are the origins of Bible Belt. Wow. <laughs> so the book is just deals with growing up in that environment, and then, you know, in my early 20s, just having some serious questions about my faith, doubting what I had been taught and what I believed my whole life, and just the process of working through all those questions. I wrote it, you know, at kind of a raw time in life where I was really deconstructing the faith that I grew up with, Um, so, you know... In some ways, I have changed since then, but the whole point of it is to try and encourage folks who are going through similar experiences to embrace the doubt and try to learn from it and to grow from it and to really live in those questions, uh, sort of with the idea that, that when faith is tested like that, it evolves, hence the mm-hmm. title, Evolving in Monkey Town. Yeah, how was it received? I mean, to talk about an evolving faith and and to have that play on words now be associated so deeply with uh, with kind of your voice. How, how has that been received in your circles? Yeah, you know, it really depends. Uh, locally, 
it's been really interesting. I, I lost friends over this, really, because some people just felt that I was too liberal, that you really have no business, you know, down south if you air your dirty laundry, that's generally considered, you know, not cool. And, you know, you don't just write about doubts. You have about God. The Christians don't have doubts about God. And so, and plus, just even using the word evolution around here is very controversial, even though it was, you were using it more metaphorically. So, so locally, the response has been maybe not so great. You know, some people kind of came out of the woodwork and, you know, really loved it, and they were very encouraging. My family was incredibly supportive and just you know, huge champions of the book. Uh, my husband, of course, has been great. But, you know, some of the locals and, and even some of my old friends, just there's sort of this weird silence between us now when it comes to faith issues. And I've learned not to you know, rock the boat more than I need to. At, at first, I was guilty of really pushing it, trying to get people to understand where I was coming from. But I've since learned that sometimes you just have to give people faith, and it's not always worth it. It's not always worth mm-hmm. sacrificing your relationship. So I've had to kind of mm-hmm. navigate those tricky waters locally and try and keep relationships, you know, sort of steady when I would rather them be growing, but I'm just trying to keep them if I can. Uh, but, you know, on the broader scale, I and mean, if you look at just the response from readers on the blog and from people who read the book who are not local, just from around the country and from around the world, the response has been really encouraging. The thing I hear most often is, I could have written this book <laughs> because it so feels like my own life and so represents my own experiences. Which is really encouraging to me because then I feel like I didn't just tell my story. I sort of told our story. And so I hear from a lot of folks, especially folks under 30, who, who relate so much to the questions that I ask and are struggling to those questions themselves, often arriving at different conclusions that I ha- than I have, but they relate to that journey. And so that's been really encouraging to me just to hear back, you know, in email and on Facebook and through the blog from people who can relate to the journey because otherwise it can be very isolating, especially in this little town, you know, just asking the kinds of questions that I ask and wrestling with the sort of issues that I wrestle with. If I didn't have this community of readers around me, I really don't know what I would do. That They have become just such a blessing in my life. and really is heart stuff. It's amazing when, you, you know, you're talking about, um, things that, that can seem like, uh, you know, these hard topics like science versus faith and uh, biblical exegesis. And, but then this community that has rallied around you is really, a, like I said earlier, I mean, it's a pretty unique culture that has responded. It's, a, it's almost like, you know, you were the first to, you know, for, for many people to say like, hey, here's some questions I struggle with and here's how I've kind of wrestled with them and I think it's okay to not know the answers all the time. And yeah. people just felt such permission that they've kind of rallied around you. Yeah, and and it's, it's mutually encouraging. It's just, it means so much to me. I mean, there are, of course, people who show up every now and then are like, hey, Rachel, you're going to hell, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, for the most part, it has just been so encouraging because, and this is why I think 
you know, having forums like a blog and, and like podcasts and, and, you know, conferences and things like Wild Juice or whatever mm-hmm. are so important because especially for people who are in a culture like mine, you know, small-town America, sort of isolated from the diversity that you get in a larger city or mm-hmm. in just a different culture, it's so, so helpful just to know that you're not alone. And yeah. so that's kind of what I think of the blog as being just a place where people can feel a little less alone, where I can feel a little less alone. And I think that that, that desire for a community has really brought us mm. together. Interesting. Can you talk a little about your rally to restore unity? Yeah, that was super fun. Um, I mean, I totally stole the idea or borrowed the concept from, you know, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert had their uh, rally to restore sanity where people kind of came out for moderation or for moderates, you know, and they had funny signs that were, you know, like, I disagree with you, but I'm pretty sure you're not Hitler, that sort of thing. And I just thought it was so funny and just I love the irony that they used to to basically say you don't have to be crazy to be, you know, politically interested. So I thought, you know, things had gotten so nasty. This was about two months ago. Things had gotten so nasty with this Rob Bell thing, and people were tweeting mean things back and forth to each other, and the evangelicals just seemed really divided over this. And, you know, people were throwing words around like heretic and unorthodox and it just, you know, and then right back that some of the Rob Bell folks got just as bad as the Piper folks and were saying ugly things. It just got real ugly, and I thought this would be a fun time to do sort of our own rally to restore something. I chose the word unity sort of haphazardly, and it turned out that that was a good idea because a lot of people had some interesting thoughts on what unity means and what it doesn't mean and that sort of thing. So I started this rally to restore unity where I just encouraged people to participate in a synchro blog where everybody wrote posts about Christian unity. And then I encouraged them to be kind of funny about it, too, and to make signs, you know, sort of like protest signs, but uh-huh. funny and ironic, because, you know, we're hipsters. And people were just awesome. That they, they really participated in fun ways and came up with some really funny signs and one guy even did sort of a uh, like rally to keep this unity alive. So he did, you know, just kind of as a funny alternative. So he had some really funny signs like, I don't know, Rob Bell sacrifices goats or something like that. So it was just really funny. People came up with really creative things. Um, and then on top of that, we I turned it into sort of a fundraiser too. And we raised $5,000 for charity water which is enough wow. to build an entire water project for a community. So we basically built a well, and we had fun doing it. So it was super fun. I'm trying to think of some of the funniest signs that people had off the website. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we just had great fun with it. Uh, oh, Dan came up with a funny sign. His was farewell flippant dismissal, which I thought was cute. And uh, it was just lots of good creative energy flowing everywhere. Yeah. So it was really fun, and I think it it did – I'm glad that it made the blog an even more fun and comfortable place for people because it sort of sent the message that we're a group of people who can laugh at ourselves and who don't take this stuff too seriously and who genuinely appreciate the diversity of views, 
you know, not we're not looking for everybody to be exactly the same. That's not what unity is about. Unity is about celebrating difference and, mm. you know, that sort of thing. So it turned out great. We had a lot of fun with it. Um, and the best thing was that we raised $5,000. I was really wow. excited that. And you got a big shout-out on Doug Padgett Radio. Oh, I know. I mean, that's like a blessing. So, yeah, it was exciting. current project is the Biblical Woman Project. Yeah. What this is, is just that a crazy about? Idea, <laughs> so this is sort of, but you know, The Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs. This mm-hmm. is a great book where he tried to take the Bible literally for a year and tried to follow all the Bible's commands as literally as possible. And I always, when I was reading that book, I thought, boy, it would be crazy if a woman tried this. But I kind of put it in the back of my mind. This book came out several years ago. And, but then, you know, recently I, I've just been really, you know, impressed by this notion of biblical womanhood that I grew up hearing about and that's very prevalent in the, particularly in the conservative evangelical culture. There's this idea that God has given us a blueprint for how to be a woman and it's found in the Bible. And that there's sort of this ideal that women should live up to, and it's called biblical womanhood. And a lot of people, you know, use this to support restricting the roles of women in church leadership or questioning the uh, godliness of women who might work outside of the home. This banner of biblical womanhood can be put above just about any pet issue, and it, it makes it sound as though the Bible supports this one particular lifestyle for all women everywhere. Mm. So, you know, that had always kind of troubled me, and I'd, I'd always been troubled by the idea of trying to turn the Bible into an adjective to begin with. I mean, you know, you'll hear people talk about biblical politics or biblical economics or biblical stewardship. You know, they just kind of stick it in front of a really loaded word, and then all of a sudden it's just this monster you can't even fight against. <laughs> and so I thought... You know, what a crazy, fun, sort of roundabout way to deconstruct this idea uh, if I actually tried biblical womanhood literally all the way. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm working with my publisher, Thomas Nelson, on this book project. So, starting last October, I decided to try and take all the Bible's commands for women or instructions for women or implications for women as literally as possible for the year. And each month I focus on a different virtue or theme that kind of goes along with that. So, I mean, I've done everything from I had to camp out in the backyard during my time of impurity, uh, which was interesting. And for 12 (laughs) days I couldn't touch my husband at all or any men. Um, I've... I went to Amish country to sort of learn about what, you know, those women do is in the way of clothing. And so I've, I have to cover my head every time I pray. And, um, you know, there's just been all kinds of things. I tried focusing, oh, on Proverbs 31. I tried turning Proverbs 31 into a to-do list, which I just really can't recommend to anybody. It was crazy. And, you know, which meant I had to learn how to sew. Um, it's just been a year of 
of craziness as a result. And I've also been trained to incorporate interviews with women who maybe interpret the Bible differently than I do or who are really living out sort of something that I only try for a month. So I've, I've developed a really good relationship with an Orthodox Jewish lady who's helped me through quite a bit of the, the most difficult tasks. And, you know, I've interviewed Amish folks and a quiverful family, and I even interviewed a polygamist. It's just been really enlightening. And then on wow. top of that, I'm trying to do a lot of research and just, you know, what does this actually mean? What's the context of this passage? So it's just been this mammoth, huge project. It's so much more than I even thought it was going to be when I first pitched the idea <laughs> to my publisher. Now it's just it's taken over my whole life. But when I'm growing up my hair, it, it, so <laughs> which is taking over my entire head. So it's just been... <laughs> Really, really interesting. I'm nine months into it, and what I've concluded so far, and I mean, I sort of had this presupposition going into this project, is that you really can't say that the Bible presents one single prescription for how to be a woman. Because uh, on top of all of those things that we typically think of, you know, like Proverbs 31 or Titus 2, uh, when it comes to womanhood, you have women like Deborah who completely shatter the mold. You know, she was a warrior, basically the president of Israel, a prophet. You know, where does she fit into this mold that people put onto it? So, you know, and J.L. And, and Mary Magdalene, and there's just so many women from Scripture who don't fit the norm. Even Sarah, this is interesting to me, Sarah is praised by Paul, by the Apostle Paul, for being an example of submission, you know, to Abraham. She called him master. That's something else I had to do. I had to call my husband master for a week, which was a little awkward, especially in public. But so Sarah, you know, so you think, oh, well, she must have been this very sort of whatever you want to do, sweet type of wife. But when you look through the accounts of Sarah and Abraham, there's three times in which Abraham didn't want to do something, but Sarah did, and Sarah got her way. So I just love that Paul uses her as an example of submission, when really she was one of the feistiest, most disobedient wives of Scripture. So there's just all these interesting conflicts you bump into, all these, this tension, and it's just been, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I love all the people I've met, all the different women I've met. And I, I just think it's important. My goal in doing this is to try and show women that none of us are living biblically. None of us. So why don't we cut ourselves and one another a little slack, you know, when our lives don't exactly look, you know, exactly the same. So I'm hoping that it will actually be a conversation starter that will, I don't know, just inspire people to be kinder to themselves and to each other and to not hang this impossible ideal over people's heads, especially when, when you talk about biblical, everybody brings something different to that. There's, there's always an interpretation process going on. So I'm hoping it will make us more careful about throwing on that phrase, biblical womanhood, when none of us are actually practicing it. All of us are picking and choosing. Nobody's doing this 100% literally, and I find that really freeing. It's amazing that you have to really do a project like that, even though Paul in uh, in the New Testament says that Christ is the end of the law in Romans. 
And uh, in Galatians talks about um, being freed to a new law, the, lo- the law of love and of grace. But the reality is we live in a context where we have reverted in some sense into a type of fundamentalism that really um, almost ignores some of those even new covenant statements about freeing people. So you have to undertake such a, an arduous kind of a sacrificial year to demonstrate to other people what is the availability of other options. Yeah, absolutely. And just even in interviewing, for instance, the polygamist, group. And these are evangelicals, believe it or not, who have taken on a polygamous lifestyle. And the name of their website is biblicalfamilies.org. It's so interesting. And they have a little picture of like a stick figure guy with two little stick figure women behind him or beside them with little children all around them. (laughs) It's just crazy. And and, But for them, it's perfectly biblical to pursue that lifestyle. So to me, the, the real interest is just in the way that we use that word, biblical, and the way that we use the Bible to sort of support our decisions and our, our lifestyle choices. And frankly, when I study polygamy in the Bible, I, I, there's really no instance in which, which it's directly forbidden. Now, we are not going to be forbidden. Participating in polygamy in this home, but <laughs> but you know if, that's, if, out, if, that's outside the scope of the project. <laughs> that is definitely outside of the project. <laughs> so the polygamy thing is not going to be an option. But I think it was a great illustration of yeah. what what can happen if we um, take this concept of biblical and impose it on onto everything that we do and, and, and use it as sort of this weapon against one another, you know, and just, yeah, it's just been really, really interesting to see how different women use that. And I mean, in, in some sense have become less judgmental of, you know, how other people mm-hmm. choose to live their lives, but I'm, I'm, I'm much, much, much more suspicious every time I read anything and the word biblical is in front of another word. <laughs> Cause I think to myself, it, every time we use that word, it, it, there has been selection involved. There's been projection involved. There's, you know, one's tradition and culture are all in that mix. And sometimes when we jump through that quickly or gloss over that, we really, I don't know, downplay the significance of that. And so for women, for a lot of women, this notion of biblical womanhood has been almost oppressive to them because it represents this ideal that they'll never live up to or that other women used to judge them for their lifestyle decisions or that keep them from assuming leadership in churches. And yet it's, it's such a loaded, um, in some ways, deceptive phrase. So, I mean, I, even I'm not sure if I want to use it as the title of the book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, because even when I concentrate on trying to live biblically, there are things I can't do. I mean, technically speaking, it's biblical for a woman to be to be forced to marry her rapist. It's biblical for her to be sold by her father to pay off the debt. It's biblical for her to be one of many wives. It's biblical for her to cover her head in church. I mean, all these things are, technically speaking, biblical. So it really comes down to, are we going to use that word descriptively, meaning to describe that which is actually found in the Bible, or prescriptively, 
meaning what God wants from you. And I think it's deceptive to use the word prescriptively, but, you know, as in what God wants. Well, this is a biblical approach to marriage or a biblical uh, woman or a biblical view on economics, because I think that that, that can be incredibly misleading. And, and in some cases, especially with women, I think it can be oppressive so, or used by, by oppressors as a tool to, to keep that going. So, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody who, who, <laughs> who does that is, I don't know, has that as a motive, but I think that to taking the Bible seriously means actually taking it for what it is and what it actually says and being aware of the ways in which we project and select and, you know, interpret the text as opposed to pretending that those things aren't there. I don't know if that makes sense. But that's kind of yeah. what I've been working through, you know. Yeah, with the that's project. great. Hey, would it surprise you if I told you that uh, I've had several friends email me or send me messages on Facebook saying, why does your friend Rachel have a sash that says Proverbs 31 woman? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess out of context, that can be very confusing. I think it, yeah. I think it has been. And, but once I explain it, or at least I think I do, it makes more sense. But why don't, why don't you explain it? Yeah, that's, that's from when I, in January, I turned Proverbs 31, which, by the way, is a poem, and it's meant to be a blessing to women, not like a to-do list. But, you know, sort of to honor the spirit of the project, it turns it into a list of things that I had to do by the end of the month. And, you know, the Proverbs 31 woman's crazy. She gets up early. She sews all the time. She, you know, brings food from afar. She considers a field and buys it and plants a vineyard. And it's just this crazy long list of things that she does. Um, anyway, so I had a bunch of sewing projects to do because, you know, this is, you know, uh, an ancient, you know, Jewish wife described here, you know, very industrious and, and, you know, great seamstress. And so I couldn't sew. So I had to do... A, I actually got a bunch of friends to help me out with a bunch of sewing projects. And so I made a purple dress because it says she is clothed in purple. So I made a purple dress out of a pattern. Actually, I say I. Mostly the church ladies helped me with that. I did maybe like one seam. And then my mom cut out the pattern. So, uh, and then I had to make a pillow because it says she covers her bed. And then I had to make a sash because oh, and I had to make a scarf. I had to make a scarf for Danny because it says her household will not fear for winter for they are clothed in scarlet. So I made Dan a red scarf. And then it says she sells sashes to the merchants. And I didn't really know what to do with that one. I'm like, what is a sash? You know, so I thought about it for a while, and I finally decided to do a Proverbs 31 sash, sort of like a beauty queen sash. So it says Proverbs 31, woman on it, like iron-on letters, and it's basically like a white ribbon that you wear. So I got, I got a picture of myself where I'm wearing the purple dress, holding the pillow, wearing the scarf, and wearing the sash, and I put it on my mm-hmm. Facebook page because it was like, Proverbs 31, you know, conquers all. But the reality of it is, is I basically didn't make any of those things myself. Because it says that the Proverbs 31 woman has the servant girls. So I figured I could get help with this. So I invited a bunch of friends over, and they basically did all of my sewing projects for me. Oh, man. I'll tell you, you know, Rachel, these projects that you're doing, like, they're so 
clever and creative, but they end up exposing the most interesting um, underlying uh, motives or, or, or opinions or attitudes that we have. They're, they're really fantastic. Well, you know what's so interesting to me about Proverbs 31 is that so I've been consulting with this Orthodox Jewish lady who's just been so enlightening. The Jews have had the Bible a lot longer than we have. We should listen to them more often. This so she's telling me about Proverbs 31. And in Jewish culture, it's a, it really is a poem, actually a song, that men sing to their wives at every Sabbath meal. Which is just fascinating because in the evangelical culture, we really turned it into this, you know, job description for women. Yeah, it's like a list of things to do, a job description, basically. Uh, whereas the, in the Jewish culture, they've really preserved the essence of it. it. It's sort of like we've basically had a shift. The poem's intended audience is men, it, and it's in Jewish culture, it's the men who memorize it so that they can say it as a blessing to their wives. In evangelical culture, in all the books about Proverbs 31 have, like, flowers and, you know, rainbows on them and are directed towards women. The target audience for a Proverbs 31 book is typically women, which is just so ironic because it's never been meant to be something we have to earn it's meant to be a blessing that we receive from our husbands. And when I was telling Dan about this, and I promise I wasn't, like, hinting that he should, <laughs> should like, <laughs> memorize it or something, but uh, I was telling him what um, my friend, this Jewish lady, Ahava, was telling me, that, that when, you know, in Jewish culture, let's say you do something, I don't know, impressive, like, you earn extra money by, you know, selling some stuff on Etsy or you, I don't know, balloon animals or you have a great blog post. When, when they do something like that, people will typically say, woman of valor. I mean, they say it in, in their language, but I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. And so Dan started doing that for me because I was telling him about that. So it's like the other day I came home with, you know, pizza, takeout pizza for dinner, and which isn't really special or anything, but I walk through the door and he's like, pizza, awesome, woman of valor, <laughs> which is just so precious. And that's actually how that passage is meant to be used. The, you know, the woman of valor from Proverbs 31, it's meant to be a way of praising women, not of making them feel like shit because they yeah. can't live up to the ideal, yeah. you know. So it's just been things like that that I actually never thought about that I'm bumping into and it's just been so rewarding and so interesting. And I'm really hoping that I can communicate to women that, you know, many of these passages that we, we think are describing, you know, expectations for us are actually meant to be praises. It's, it's actually the longest uh, and most flattering portrait of women basically in, in ancient culture of that time. And mm. and we I just I just can't believe it. It's like leave it to evangelicals to turn a poem into a job description, you know? <laughs> like we really wow. robbed it of its original beauty. And so it was kind of funny. It's like by turning it into a to do list and then presenting that against the contrast, you know, presenting a contrast between Proverbs thirty one is a to do list and Proverbs thirty one is a blessing. Uh, was just really interesting and really brought that home for me. Wow, wow.
you came to Big Tent Phoenix and uh, yeah. were a big, you were a big hit. I mean, you and Mark Scandrett were the books that sold out of the bookstore. And um, y- y- people really responded to your presentations and to the conversations that you led. A couple of things I wanted to ask you about uh, regarding that. The first was, uh, what did it feel like to stand between Marcus Borg and Philip Clayton talking about <laughs> evolution and creation? What was that like? These guys were just going off on these really smart philosophical things, and I was just like, well, in Dayton, Tennessee, nobody believes that. You know, like <laughs> trying to represent sort of like, you know, Southern American evangelical culture. Uh, so that was just very strange. And, and I remember Marcus Borg said something. And I disagreed with him on it, and I was like, don't let this come out of your mouth. Don't disagree with Marcus Borg in front of this whole group of people. But it still came out. I was like, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. And as soon as it came out, I was like, oh, crap. (laughs) Like, I cannot (laughs) hold my own with this guy. But he was so gracious and so nice, and we had a nice little back and forth. I think he had just said something that it wasn't so much that I disagreed with him. It's just the way that he said it. I just felt like really most Christians are not going to, follow you on, or most Christians from where I'm from would, yeah. would see that as huge red flag and aren't going to go there with you. So I just wanted to let him know. But it, but it really resonated with people that you said, hey, hold on a minute here, Mr. Publish 50 Books. <laughs> I know, just the humorous of it, probably, but like, <laughs> well, I think it's more just like, sometimes when I go to these big, you know, when I go to more progressive conferences, it's just kind yeah. of funny because I, I feel like the liberal when I'm in Dayton, but when I go to these conferences, I feel like the conservative. So I do think it's important yeah. that somebody say, you know, before we start talking about, oh, you know, he was talking about like, maybe God is not, you know, a person with a personality type thing. I was mm-hmm. like, before we go there, you know, as a conclusion yeah. to believing in evolution, we, is there some middle ground, you know, that, yeah. that will make... Because when, 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 when very progressive people say things like that and, and say, well, that's the result of sort of believing in an old earth or evolution or, you know, whatever, it, it, what that communicates to people who are afraid to embrace yeah. science is that, Oh, yeah, the slippery slope will take you all the way down to there. So, yeah. you know, I always feel like I play the devil's advocate a little bit when I'm at those yeah. conferences. You know, after Big Ten Phoenix, one of the critiques, the, actually the strongest and I almost only critique, uh, was that there weren't enough conservatives there, that it was all progressives. And you were actually the standard bearer for the conservatives in that place. But I know that that's a unique role for you. And that when you're in the southeast, for somebody to say Rachel is the standard bearer for conservative uh, perspective, <laughs> evangelical perspective. Well, let's say, let's say a standard bearer for evangelical perspective, and then but you come out to west of the Mississippi, and and people are like, there's there's all progressives here except Rachel. <laughs> right, <laughs> it is true, but it's kind of fun too. It keeps me sharp because it, it, I think it's I don't know. There's good and bad on on both sides and, and things to weigh on both sides. And, and so I think it's just like being in one place and then going to the other right after. It's really good to – it forces me to say, okay, Rachel, what do you actually think? What do you really believe? What are you really thinking here? What are you processing? Uh, whereas if I just sort of floated down the progressive stream or floated down the conservative stream, I wouldn't be tested like that to, to really – I don't know, yeah. be honest with myself. 
So I love doing both events and, and, and yeah. being with those groups because they really, truly are very good people who really love Jesus in, in both camps. And yeah. it really breaks my heart that they have such a hard time getting together. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing that happened at Big Tent Phoenix was um, you were going to lead a breakout session on doubt, dealing with doubt, and uh, how faith includes doubt. It's a really powerful thing that you talk about. And we ended up putting you in the biggest room, the sanctuary, um, that afternoon, And which I was thinking, I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. What if there's only a couple people there and they kind of get lost in this giant room? And they all said, no, no, let's leave her there. It was packed, first of all. Yeah. And but the, the other thing is that it turned into this amazing collaborative process of people passing around the microphone and telling you their story. Yeah. Well, you know, I, when I went into that, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go with it. Because when it comes to doubt, like, I have as many questions about how to do that well, you know, much more, many more questions, really, than I have answers or advice for people. And, you know, the room was filled with mostly people who were older than me. And so I just felt like I'm going to just turn this into more of a, you know, discussion, a conversation about how do we make church a better environment for people who are skeptics and who have questions and who are struggling with doubt or who have, you know, doubt's a part of their life. And yeah. I didn't really know the answer to that. I don't know how to create that environment. Uh, and I want to create that environment here in Dayton and, you know, in, in, in my church. And so the pe- people had just some really thoughtful ideas, and they told me about things that had worked in their community that was just really, really helpful. And so it was, yeah, I mean, it, it was more just facilitating the conversation and letting other people share what had worked for them that, that made that work. It wasn't, you know, I really didn't have that much to bring to the conversation. I hadn't planned that much. But it just is a testament to the sort of people who were there and the, their openness and just the great ideas that they have. Don't you think it says something about facilitating space that when you are the keynote person and yet your leadership style is to provide room and, and the way people respond both in that room and on your blog, don't you think it says something about uh, what's needed for the, the Christian community? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think part of it is the reason I was sort of forced to, to be good at this, I think, is because I'm young. And so mm-hmm. I always have this sense of, oh, there's probably people here who know more than I do about this topic. Mm-hmm. So what do I need to do to make sure that they get heard uh, and that I'm not speaking so loudly that they can't be heard? And so it's just sort of by accident that I think I've, you know, found a way to, to do that. And I think it's just you have to know how to ask good questions. You have mm-hmm. to know how to, you know, get over yourself and shut up if, if somebody has something to say that, that is more studied or enlightened than what you had to say. And to, you know, not not be intimidated by people who are wiser and um, smarter and and more mature than you. Uh, because yeah. I, I mean, I really genuinely feel that, you know, when I'm in – you know, a conference environment or even on the blog, there's a really good chance that somebody else out there has something better to say about this. And I want to find that, you know. And often it ends up in a comment, you know, at the bottom, you know, very bottom of the post, you know, 30, 
40, 50 comments in, somebody says something truly profound and genuinely helpful. And I try to highlight those comments at the end of the week with, like, a best comment or something. But, um, yeah, I think it's just just, you have to come into – I think you have to come into every conversation, every room, every community with the assumption that somebody there has something better to offer than you do and, and to look for it. And then when you help people find that, then you feel like you've done something good. I mean, not to generalize, but maybe this is something that women can can bring really bring to the table. I mean, I don't want to generalize too much, but women do tend to be better listeners, and and I think right. if if leadership so, involved more listening, that right. it would change a lot. You know, change the dynamic quite a bit. It's funny because so much of that is socialized as um, girls come into being women. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you kind of, and, and that, it's also something that I think you just have to learn over time and you have to make mistakes. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I've had moments where I've talked over people or, or just, I don't know, because I'm feeling insecure, I try to drown out any sort of disagreement or a new idea, you know, or if a Calvinist says, hi, I'm a Calvinist, I immediately stop listening. <laughs> but, you know, so, so what it's, I guess it's just something you have to learn as you go. The thing I keep telling myself is, Rachel, as you get older, don't get cocky. You know, there's so many, mm. I don't know, there's so many egos in this business. Um, mm. You know, there, I mean, not everybody, but there, there are some. <laughs> yeah. And I just keep telling myself, try to, you know, when I started out, you know, writing and speaking at 24, I was painfully aware of my, you know, how much room I had to grow. And I just hope that I have to keep telling myself to keep that. Now that I'm, you know, really old and 30 and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny. We're asking everyone we interview these days, what is the biggest challenge or crisis or conversation facing the American church? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's how do we disagree well because I think when when people see sort of the church in decline and numbers dwindling they tend to retreat a little bit to their pet lines that they like to draw on the sand which really the opposite should be happening we should be trying to join together to to make something new happen and so I think that you know, the the Rob Bell fallout and then just the political climate and all of that has really illustrated that Christians in America have a difficult time disagreeing well. And when we're confronted with, you know, all that is going on in the world with, you know, poverty and and conflict and and, you know, there's so many more important things to be addressing than trying to declare with absolute certainty where everybody goes when they die, which is just a ludicrous that any of us think we can know that. Um, I feel just that we've gotten a little sidetracked with these dumb arguments, and when we throw around things like, you know, heretic to describe somebody who has a slightly different view on, you know, salvation than we do, but can affirm the creeds and everything, it just seems like we're really in no man's land. So, but what encourages me is that I really feel like my generation is um, much more missional focused, much more, I don't know, I think issues like homosexuality and, um, you know, just environmental issues and that sort of thing. We have a very different set of assumptions that we're bringing to the world. And so if, if we stay in church and if we keep the faith, uh, 
then I think that things will actually improve. But a lot of young people are leaving Christianity because, precisely because of the hostile, mean atmosphere that they encounter there as soon as they start questioning what their religious leaders tell them. So, yeah, I think that we've got to learn how to disagree better in the U.S. so that we can actually work together to do something that matters. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I, you know that I'm a fan, but I also Aww. really uh, have grown to treasure you as a friend. So I, I... Aww, me too. The <laughs> kind, encouraging words. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate well, it. You guys have been just really great to me. After this comes out, um, let's do a split screen video, me and you, because I still have three more questions, but it will make the podcast too long. But I have questions I want to ask you about the differences between rural, urban, and suburban, about regional differences, and about some Rob Bell stuff. So we'll do that on video. That sounds good, Seth. That sounds good. Thanks so much, though. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, this is a lot of fun.